Welcome to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. We know lots of people listened to and enjoyed episode 52 with Steve Salas. For those that haven't already, we would greatly appreciate any feedback and your reviews on the platform that you use to listen. Before we give you a snippet and introduce today's guest, we would like to point you in the direction of our two books, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly, and The Lone Wolf, story about assumptions, authenticity, and action. Both are available on Amazon. Now, here's a little snippet of what to expect today. Nowadays, man management is, is bigger than it ever was before. Uh, you know, we, David and I, at the beginning of, of the, the days at, at Everton, we used to think that everything was solved with another coaching session. But actually, you know, as, as it hurts me to say it as a coach, but, uh, but actually man management for me is much more important at first team level than, than coaching. And it's probably becoming more and more important at youth development level as well. Um, Ray, Ray Harford used to say that, you know, if people don't think that you like them, they won't let you help them. So you, you've got to kind of look after them uh, properly, create the right kind of environment, which is, is that environment again, like Kenny said, where it's enjoyable. People like coming to work, they like coming to the training ground, but they know they're there to work. We're excited to welcome Alan Irvin onto today's episode of the podcast. Alan was the assistant manager at West Ham United up until this season, stepping down for personal reasons. He stayed on at the Hammers, however, in a technical advisory role, assisting the first team and the staff continue their remarkable success that led them to Europe for the 2021-22 season. Alan has a vast array of experiences within football, working as a manager, assistant manager and more at several high-profile clubs. Alan, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Golders podcast today. Oh, you're welcome. So to us, Goldust is about sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Um, probably small perils of wisdom, um, small details that that make all the difference. Um, I'm not a lover of jargon. Um, I'm somebody who likes things to be said in the simplest possible way so that the, the players can can understand and be really clear in terms of the uh, the information that you're trying to impart. Um, all the best coaches that I've ever worked with or watched have said things in such a way that make me say, why on earth did I not think of that? That is so straightforward. That is so clear. It was so easy. And here I am trying to find all sorts of different ways of, of saying something which the best coaches, as I say, say in, in such a clear and simple and concise way. Well, simplicity is definitely the genius without a shadow of a doubt, Alan. Uh, but as a coach, you've worked in various roles throughout your career. Initially uh, at Blackburn Rovers, then Newcastle United and Everton, becoming a manager, uh, firstly with Preston, and then you went to Sheffield Wednesday. You then went back to Everton, but in charge of their academy. 
before going back to senior football as a, a coach at West Bromwich Albion. You then joined uh, Blackburn as assistant manager in November 2015 and was later caretaker manager of Norwich City and assistant manager at West Ham. Can you share with us how you have adapted and evolved over the years to the similarities and differences in working in result-based coaching to when you were involved in development coaching? Yeah, well, I, th I think, first of all, you've got to be really clear in what exactly is your role. Um, as as the, a manager of a first team, as an assistant manager or a coach of a first team, uh, you have to win games. Without any doubt, you will be regarded as, as someone who fails and you won't be in the job for long if you don't win games. So that has to be the priority. Um on the other side, when you're doing youth development, uh, it's about developing individuals. Nobody can get a team through. Even the class of 92 for Manchester United couldn't get everybody through. They got a, a, a big group of players through. I was fortunate enough to have that similar situation at both Blackburn and, and at Newcastle. Um, but it happens very, very rarely. It's normally the odd player who comes through. So the job there and the success in the job there is to bring players through to the first team. Those would be the differences for me. The similarities are that it's still all based on improving players, improving the team, because the team, even within development football, the team's the vehicle for the, the good players to develop. Um, and, and it's about making sure that performance is, is good. Again, in, in both sides, if performance is good and, and is continually improving, whether that's the performance of individuals or the performance of a team, then the results will improve, whether that result is actually winning a game on a Saturday or getting a player through to the first team. You mentioned that you were assistant manager at West Ham United. Now, you stepped down as the Hammers assistant boss this past summer. But yes. you do still play a part in the club in a, a technical advisory role. Now, West Ham, last year, and it's continuing, they're having great success. And they're, they're flying, and it's great to see. What are some of the key indicators of success in your time at West Ham? Uh, well, first of all, um, on both occasions that we went in, because we went in uh, before Manuel Pellegrini and then we went in after Manuel, um, and in both occasions the team was fighting in a relegation battle at that particular time. So, so immediately I go back to this having to win games. We were in a situation where we not only had to win games, for our own sakes, um, but we needed to win games for the sake of the club because the, the club was in a perilous position at that particular time. Um, so everything that was done probably in the first half seasons that we went in to West Ham on both occasions, everything was about trying to make sure that we were able to win enough points to stay in the league. That was a very, very clear goal. It was, we need to get enough points to stay in the league. Hopefully we can get them before the last game of the season. Um, but I have to say that on both occasions, I kind of feared that that might go as, as far as that. Thankfully, it didn't do. Then having had, so the, the, the first 
six month spell at West Ham was only that spell and, and that was all, all the contract that we had signed anyway Manuel Pellegrini came in after the, after David uh, and then we, uh, we we had our second spell after Manuel had left what we got that was different in the second spell was we got not only a pre-season but an extended pre-season because of lockdown in this country and, and actually we were one of the clubs who definitely benefited from lockdown because we now had a pause during the season when we could actually get a lot of work done with the players when we weren't having to play games. So we were able then to, to work very, very hard in terms of improving the fitness of the players because one of the one of the indicators we looked at straight away was where the, the players were physically in, in comparison with the rest of the league. And uh, we were bottom on most of the physical stats. Now, that, that's an easy one to improve, really. It's, it's hard work for the players, but it's an easy thing to improve because you just you just make sure that you work them incredibly hard than you do. We, we did a lot of double sessions, a lot of very long sessions, and so the, the fitness levels improved. Um, but it also gave us a chance to do things in terms of the technical and tactical side of the game that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were playing a couple of games a week or even going Saturday to Saturday because everything then would have been about recovery from the previous game and preparation for the next game. So we were, we were really fortunate to have really two pre-seasons very close to each other because it was a 10-game run-in after the, the lockdown to the, the end of that season. And then a very short time afterwards, we started the pre-season for the next season. So, so that gave us really, really valuable time. And that, that was, strangely enough, it was more like working with, with the youth team set up, the development set up, because what we were, were trying to do was develop a load of different things uh, within the squad as, as individuals, but also the, the collective units and, and the, the team as a whole. Well, I know I've heard it a lot recently. You watch West Ham and the term comes on TV. They find a way to win. Yeah. Now that you've mentioned the fitness aspect of it. So the, the relentlessness, the fact that they can just keep going. Yeah. But from a mental side, how big a part has that played really since you came in to, to having that confidence and will to just keep going regardless of what's being thrown at you to then ultimately now getting the results that, that are taking place? Well, the, the, it's massive. Uh, I think in, in any top-level sport, um, the mental side of it is probably the biggest part of it. Um, you know, the players of whichever sport that reach the top, they get their, yes, because they have talent, without a doubt, and they get there because of a, a, a number of different things, maybe physical attributes and things like that. But without the mentality, without the right mentality, then it's going to be extremely difficult to be successful. The, the players now believe that they can win games. You know, bear in mind, this was a squad of players who weren't used to winning games. They, they were low. They, their confidence was, was very low. They were, they were fragile. Any setbacks became big setbacks rather than them being able to move on. 
But what happens is that by by improving results, by winning more games, you start to believe that you can win more games. And, you know, the, the players now know that they are capable of winning a lot of games in the Premier League. And clearly they're, they're experiencing that they're capable of winning uh, games in, in European competition as well. So there's a, there's a real feel-good factor about the place. The... David has, has put together a, a really good group of professionals. Um, the recruitment has been really important, but recruitment is, is not just looking at the quality of the player, um, the, the, the technical abilities, tactical understanding, but the massive part nowadays is what, what type of character he is. And that's, that's, of course, something that's a bit harder to find out. You can see what they look like when they're playing in the game, but you've got to do an awful lot of digging um, and try and find uh, as many people as you can who can give you information about the personality and the character uh, of the players. And every player that's been signed has been the, exactly the right personality, the, exactly the right character. And, and what's happened now is that we have a group of players who are actually demanding of each other, a group of players who are really together and uh, we have no we have no terrorists within our, our groups. We have, we have everybody within the group who's pulling in the right direction, in the same direction. Uh, we've got nobody who's undermining that at all. So, so yeah, those, those qualities help them to become much stronger. And I, I, someone said to me earlier in the week, they seem to play with a smile on their faces. They celebrate goals together. They, they, you know, there's always some kind of little daft dance or something like that going on when they're celebrating. But, uh, but it just shows how close they all are. Well, obviously, results and where they are at the moment in the league and some super results of late. When we come back to you, Alan, and uh, you know, we'll delve a little deeper around the coaching element and what's actually helped shape you as, as a coach. But whilst, uh, whilst you were playing at Queen's Park up in Scotland, you actually studied for a qualification as an insurance broker. Yeah. Was that your initial plan as a career after finishing playing? Uh, absolutely. I, in, in fact, it wasn't even a case of uh, was that my initial plan after playing. I, I signed a, a three-year contract for Everton from Queen's Park. Now, to, to let you know about the, the size of the, the step that I was taking, um, my, my last game of football for Queen's Park was at a place called Central Park where Cowden Beath played. I then, that was in, in May, obviously, of, of well, May 1981. Um, within a month, I was away in Japan with Everton playing against Inter Milan. And that tells you the chasm that I had to kind of get over uh, and this, the step that I was making from, from being an amateur, playing, as, playing for Queen's Park, working as an insurance broker, studying for insurance exams, to now, you know, actually trying to get into a team that was playing against Inter Milan. Uh, and I honestly, at the time of signing the three-year contract, thought, well, I've got three years as a professional footballer and then I'll probably go back to insurance. 
um, because I, I couldn't quite see at that stage that that, that could be, you know, a successful journey. Um, you know, and I didn't think about anything else in between. Well, I might drop down a level or something. Uh, so I continued all the way through my, my playing career. I continued to subscribe to keep my uh, my qualifications in the Chartered Insurance Institute. And actually, once I'd done my coaching badges, uh, I, I was now 31 and, and thought, oh, I might still be ending up back in insurance. I've, I've played in the game all these years. I'll continue to play and I will finish at some point. Um, but I might not get a coaching job. So I'd better uh, start to, uh, well, refresh everything as far as the insurance qualifications are concerned. So I started studying insurance again. Um, and that was, fortunately, it's not been needed. And, and I no longer subscribe to the Chartered Insurance Institute. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen... I'm sure uh, because of the analytics, irrespective of the actual vocation and role, there'll have been crossovers where, because of the detail yeah. that you go into and around the insurance brokering stuff, yeah. has there been any crossover, do you think, and any benefits from, and I'm not suggesting well, to anybody that they go on the insurance broker role. No, no. It's not the normal route, that for, that's for sure. Um, it's, if, you want, if you want to be a successful coach, I'm not saying you need to go and do your insurance exams. Um, no, the, uh, what, what did certainly shape me for a, to a large extent was that I, I was an insurance broker. I worked nine to five, Monday to Friday, plus some overtime as well. I trained three nights a week. I played on a Saturday for, you know, and, and that was as an amateur, but in the Scottish second division. So it was in a professional league, but I was an amateur. Uh, and I was studying for insurance exams. Now, when people say to me that it's hard work being a footballer or a football manager or something like that, I can tell you it was a lot harder work doing all of those things and, and trying to trying to, to kind of succeed in, in all different fronts. Um, and, and so... Straight away, the work ethic um, has been there and it's never seemed like a hardship. You know, the idea of, of now, instead of doing all that, the nine to fives, Monday to Friday, the exams, the, the, the kind of going and training for a couple of hours, three times a week at, in the evenings when it was dark and cold and the facilities were awful. Um, it was now a case of... Uh, Oh, I'm actually going to get paid a lot more money for playing football for a little bit of time in the mornings, and uh, and so I, to this day, I've felt extremely lucky uh, that I was able to to pursue a career in football, and and I've never, I've never taken that for granted. Well, Alan, you you mentioned obviously being at Everton. From there, you went to Palace. You went to Crystal Palace. While still playing professionally, you then started to coach. So the insurance broker thing kind of went, yeah. went further away from that and, and closer into what ended up being your, your chosen profession after football. So you went into coaching. What was it that intrigued you so much about coaching for you to get involved? Well, well the first thing was that I, I was used to doing, well, I was used to working all day and in the, in the evenings. 
But I felt as if when I went to Everton, that because of the big step that I mentioned earlier on, I had to uh, I had to really focus on on just trying to, to become the best player that I could become. And so I did nothing else in the afternoons. You know, uh, there, was, there was no... Uh, it was just a case of I'm, I'm going to rest. I'm going to make sure that I'm prepared for the next day's training or for the next day's match and, and so on. So I, I had no intention during that three-year spell at Everton that I would, uh, would do anything else, get involved in anything else. When we moved to, uh, I moved to Crystal Palace. Um, by that time, now I was starting to think, well, it looks like I might get a career out of football. Um, so, uh, what am I going to do in the afternoons? Because I, I feel as if I've got all this extra time. And and so I, I, I actually decided, well, let's find out a bit more about this game. I really enjoy the game. I like kind of looking at things in a slightly different way, perhaps, than, than some of the other players. And and so I, I just decided that, well, let's let's try a coaching badge and see if I like it. I loved it. From from day one, I, have, I, I absolutely loved studying the game. Bear in mind, I was used to studying. So straight away, I, I was now studying something else. I was getting into the, the depth and detail and starting to, you know, from, from that point, I was now analysing the managers and coaches who were who were in charge of, of me. And I was looking back and thinking about Howard Kendall at Everton and what did he do and what did I think was good? What, would, what did I think, well, I'm not sure that I will do that. Going back beyond that to, to the help that I got as a young player coming through Queen's Park and coming through four teams and, and different coaches and, and, uh, that I came across then. So it just, I, I just got the bug, I guess. I, I immediately loved being involved in a coaching environment. I felt it was helping to improve my game because I was thinking about the game in greater detail. And uh, for the next five years, I did coaching badges in both Scotland and England. Now, this was before UEFA qualifications. Um, so you could actually, you know, I did my did my full licence in, in England, did my full badges in, in Scotland as well, and actually really loved the couple of weeks that you would go to Lillishaw or to Largs, depending on which one I was doing at that particular year. Um, it didn't make me any more qualified. It just meant that I'd done more courses. And that it was, uh, it was a, you know, when the UEFA qualifications came along, it was a UEFA qualification. It was as, as simple as that. So um, it was just something that I, I started because I had time on my hands and very quickly realised, actually, I really enjoy this. Um, did I think at that point that I would get a career out of coaching? No. Uh, I thought that I was simply going to do this because I enjoyed doing it. It was making me uh, understand the game a bit better. And it was now it probably going to be a situation that I'd end up coaching a kids' team or a, a men's amateur team or something like that when I when I finish playing, which I'm sure I would have done because uh, I, I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed helping people or trying to help people. I'm not sure that I helped everybody. <laughs> now, after playing 
at Palace. You moved to Dundee United. Yeah. And then on to Blackburn Rovers, where you played under Kenny Dalgleish. And, and whilst at Blackburn, you did some voluntary coaching at, at the club at the time, at Blackburn, yeah. before actually retiring as a player. Yeah. What was it that you were doing at Blackburn at that time? And, and how did you get involved with that? Was that something you looked for? Is it something that Kenny, yeah. Kenny Dalgleish had actually said, I want you to get involved with it? Well, well, it actually goes back beyond, uh, before that. Um, when I was at, at Dundee United, by the time I got to Dundee United, that I'd finished doing all the coaching courses that could be done. Um, there, there weren't any more that I could go and do. And so here I was, I'd done full coaching badge in Scotland, full coaching badge in England, and uh, I didn't coach anybody. And I thought, well, I, I, I'd, <laughs> there's no point in doing all of that and now kind of stopping coaching anybody. So... I actually, at uh, Dundee United, I took over from, uh, from Paul Sturrock in terms of doing uh, coaching a local amateur team who actually were, uh, and, and obviously this was completely unpaid work. They were, they were a, it really was a local amateur team, but they, they turned out they were a really good team and, and they, they had a whole load of success. And I have to say, I ran them to death. I really did. It was, uh, these poor guys were turning up after a day's work and I was absolutely killing them on the training ground with the ball and things like that. But they were, they were going off dying and heading off to the pub to refresh, you know. Um, but this was uh, that. I, I actually, again, really enjoyed it. I said earlier that, you know, I would have ended up doing something like that as I not kind of gone into coaching professionally. Um, so I had already done that. I then went to Blackburn. That stopped. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't coaching anybody anymore. So I said to Jim Fermel, who was a great guy and great help for me in the, the early days, I said to Jim, would you mind if I come along and, and just watch some of the sessions? So it started off, I went along and, and watched. I then started to get involved in a couple of little real simple basic things and that gradually developed and I became more and more involved. And then one time Jim said to me, you know, we're, we're starting, this was in the days before academies, but you could have a centre of excellence and then you could have a satellite centre or two. And Jim said to me, would you mind running a, a satellite centre for us? It was fantastic for me, you know, an opportunity for me to, make a whole load of mistakes whilst trying to help young players to develop. And, uh, you know, the, the making mistakes is, is a part of the, the journey. It's a, a part of the development, I believe, because you, you come back afterwards and think, that was hopeless. Um, I, I really need to do that better. And, and how can I do it better? And, and so on. So, so I got to practice on these poor young lads, you know, and, uh, and you know, fortunately, I, got, I started to get a bit better. And uh, I, I was still playing for, for Blackburn's first team. So this, again, was, was completely voluntary. It was in my own time. I was doing that in the evenings. But loving it, absolutely loving it. And didn't think anything would come of it. I had no, no views of, of that. And playing in the first team when Kenny was the manager and, and I got injured. I dislocated my shoulder and I broke my collarbone. And, you know, not a career-ending injury, but, but an injury that kept me out of first-team football. 
And Kenny said to me, would you mind going, while you're injured, would you like to go and help Jim Fernell with the young lads? Now, Jim, Jim's a great guy, as I say, and, and very knowledgeable. But by that stage in his life, he was, he was starting to struggle a little bit on the physical side in terms of being able to demonstrate and things like that. So there was I, you know, a first-team player able to demonstrate exactly what's required and, and so on. For, for gym sessions and at the end of that season became the real big decision point because my contract was up at Blackburn I could see what was happening at Blackburn with the influx of Jack Walker's money and uh, it was clear that Blackburn were going to become a force in, in English football and I didn't know whether I was going to be part of that force or not but I had this opportunity now Kenny, Kenny said to me I'd like you to become the youth team coach. We'll keep you on a player's contract, but I'd like you to become the youth team coach. And if you, you needed to come and play for the first team, then, then you know, that will, that will happen. Um, and I, I said to him, look, let me think about it, because it was a major decision. I, I had come into the game as a professional late because of working as an insurance broker. I wanted to play till I was 40. Um, and that was a, a goal of mine and, and, and I could have done uh, I, I'm not saying I would have played at Blackburn Rovers until I was 40 but I could have done because I was, I was fit um, but uh, I now had to make a decision at 35 about whether I was going to pack in playing and be part of Blackburn Rovers going forward and becoming this force in, in the English football or whether I was uh, going to take a chance and continue continue playing and maybe never get a coaching opportunity and maybe certainly never get this kind of coaching opportunity. So, difficult decision, but I, I, I said, right, okay, I, I'm, I will become the youth team coach, but uh, that's me finished in terms of the playing because I can't be coaching the youth team players morning and afternoon whilst the first team are training and still be regarded as a first team player. So, so that was, that was what was decided at that point. Well, I'm, I'm going to just jump back a little bit into earlier on in that last answer. So you are a professional footballer going, working in the amateur game, you're working with younger age groups, get an experience. Yeah. You mentioned mistakes. So you said it was a great place to make loads of mistakes. In terms of obviously making mistakes, you have to learn from them. Yeah. Um, from your side, are you a, are you a big reflector in what? Yeah, you always, always have been. Um, I've I've got every session I've ever done written down. Um, I'm I'm still pen and paper, uh, so so I, I haven't haven't changed them into uh, a, another format or anything like that. But I have I have every session, as I say, that I've ever done. And reflection was pretty much, you know, just a, a couple of comments. If there was any reflection to, if, well, if there was anything to comment on, you know, if I was quite happy with how the session went. I, I didn't need to kind of write anything, but I'd scribble things down, and you know, at the, the end of my notes on things like area was too big, moved on too quickly. This was, this was too hard for the players. This was too easy. They were bored after 10 minutes. I need to have something else to take them on to. 
um, you know, before before they get to that stage. Just little reflections like that. But I spent, a, I'm a real planner. Um, I'm probably coming back again to the insurance brokers days, but I, I, I do a lot of planning. Even to this day, I take a long time to plan sessions or to plan presentations or demonstrations or anything like that. Um, and, I, it, you know, for me, the planning also has to come with some kind of reflection. I didn't spend nearly as much time on the reflection as I did on the planning. Um, and hopefully spending the time on the planning helps you to, to not have so much to reflect on or so so much that you feel that was awful and that needs to be improved. So so yeah, right from the very first days, it was it was a case of if the session wasn't good, I mean I'm a great believer that that's the coach's responsibility that, you know, I've done, I've done many, uh, I've coached many coaches now for the FA and for the SFA over the years. And, and if they say to me, well, you know, you, you say at the end of the session, what do you think? Well, oh, wasn't that great. Why was it not that great? Well, the players in the bowl, no, let's stop there. Come on, let's go back a little bit. Come on. Why was it not that great? And trying to get them to, to kind of look, in first of all, look at themselves first of all and see, well, you know, did I do anything that, that could have been done better? Uh, and, and so I've always looked at it from that point of view. Um, and, and I always feel that as a coach, it's your responsibility to find another way to help the players to get what you want. It's not just a case of, well, no, this is the way I've done it. And such and such a player managed to kind of understand what I wanted from there. So why hasn't he? That's his fault. It's up to me then. It's my responsibility to find a way to help the guy who didn't get helped by the by the previous methods. So, so yeah, re reflection, vitally important. I don't think you're spending hours and hours and hours reflecting. I think it's important that you have the, the hours and hours and hours to, to think how you're going to do things better in the future. When we do reflect on things that haven't worked particularly well, is there a time where you go, look, I need to relax a little bit here because, because the height of emotion that might have taken place during, during a session, then we actually don't come up with the appropriate answer. Because we're still we're still charged with 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 the emotion, and so therefore we don't get, if you like, accurate. And it's, look, it's all subjective at best, isn't it? When we're going to get reflection, yeah. and then we start coming up with an answer. But is there a time for you? You know, do you, do, you, do you wait an hour? Do you give it a day? I mean, it's an individual thing, of course, but I think it's important yeah. to share where you when you do this. Well, it, it, it probably. Craig, it, it probably starts straight away, um, but not. I don't beat myself up over this, you know, because we're all capable of delivering a good session at times and a bad session at times, and and you know, it, and it can be the same session. It just doesn't quite work in, in the, the next occasion. So it's a case of just looking and saying, well, okay, it didn't really work. Why didn't it work? Okay, well, I'll try this the next time. And that might not work either. But, you know, the, I said earlier about uh, the, the benefit of making mistakes with a, a whole load of young players who didn't know I was making mistakes. You know, if, you, if you're at first team level, they've got a pretty good idea if you're making a mistake and you're, you're making a mess of it. But uh, 
But working with young players, I, I remember Ray Harford saying to me, experiment, try things. From this was right at the beginning of me becoming the youth team coach at Blackburn. And here's the, the, the first team assistant manager who was a brilliant coach saying to me, try things, go and have a go, go and see, see if it works. We'd sit and we'd chat and I'd say to him, what do you think of this? He said, go and try it. And so it was, it was fantastic to be given that, that freedom um, and, and that backing. That, and, and also the, the kind of uh, the reassurance that if it doesn't work today, well, there's a whole load of other sessions, you know, so it doesn't really matter. It's not the end of the world. I think the reality there is a lot of the times the players won't know any better anyway. So, no, they, they don't know what you've got planned. <laughs> for you, it may not be what you wanted or you might not get the outcomes that initially you'd set out, but for them, they may not know any better. I think that the key in that is obviously like, like we spoke about the reflection. Now, I, I'm going to move on. We spoke a little bit at the start around result-based stuff, the similarities, differences. Now, Working in result-based coaching, as you mentioned, there are different pressures you've got to win. And if you don't win, you're not going to be in a job for long. What did you do to deal with the ups and downs in senior football? Um, well, first, first of all, you've, you've got to acknowledge that there are ups and downs. You've got to accept that there are ups and downs. And, and you've, got to, uh, you've, you've got to be able to move on from both the ups and the downs. Um, the, it's an awful lot easier to move on from an up than it is to move on from a down because you know if you if you lose on a Saturday, um, you're usually still thinking about that that defeat. By well until the next game, if if you win on a Saturday, generally you'll walk in after the game, say well done to the players, and then walk into the coach's room and say right, what's next? Who have, who have we got to deal with next? You know, you move on. It's a, it's a real shame because most coaches, most managers move on unbelievably quickly from the, the win and take so long to be able to move on from, from the defeat. That doesn't mean that you can show that to the players because uh, as far as the players are concerned, you've got to have moved on anyway. Because if you go in looking miserable on a Monday morning because you've lost on a Saturday, then that will be reflected on the training ground and that will have an adverse effect. So it's, it's vitally important that I, I always I call it putting the mask on. You can be as miserable as sin, you know, until the minute that you walk out of the coach's room um, to see the players. And then you've got to put this mask on that makes you, them think everything's okay now. Um, so, so, yeah, being able to, being able to do that I think is is vitally important. Um, I think you've got to try and avoid getting caught up in all the the noise that's around, either the, the wins or the defeats. Um, again, you know your ego might want you to kind of dwell a little bit on on some uh, some successes that you've had, but the next game's coming, and the thing about football is it's. Uh, you're not too far away from a crisis on, on a lot of occasions. Um, you know, you, you're continually looking and thinking the next the next game could be the one that tripped you up. Um, so, so you've got to be you've you've got to be able to move on as quickly as you can. I don't I don't listen to phone-ins. I don't listen to 
Uh, I don't have any social media, so I'm reducing the amount of noise that's going on around what you're trying to do. But like I said, it's, it is a case then of seeing what you, what you can do better when things haven't gone so well. Putting the mask on and having potentially experienced a, a defeat, irrespective of whether it is there's something coming and it's whether it's uh, there's another game and there's another time. Yeah. But how do you go about, when you have that, Alan, how do you go about building an healthy learning working environment for your players? What does it look like? I know you mentioned yeah. you know, you're, a, you're a deep thinker, you're a, a, you know intensive, aggressive, although you didn't use the term aggressive planner. There's lots of planning taking place. What does that environment look like? How do you create it? Well, uh, and, and how do you integrate all of what you've got from the plan into, into the session? Yeah. Um, I, I remember, again, very first days, you know, and just so influential as, as a young coach. But, uh, but Kenny Dalglish actually said to me that, make sure it's fun. Don't turn it into a laugh and a joke, but make sure it's fun. So I've always gone on the basis that the players need to enjoy themselves. That means, you know, so at, at first team level, every place I've gone as a manager, I've said to the players, and, and I think there's a difference. At youth team level, it's coaching. It's coaching, it's coaching, it's coaching, it's coaching. At first team level, it's mainly training and it's organising and there's a, there's, there are bits of coaching, but in the main, you're preparing the team for the games. You're not really coaching individuals. You're not really coaching units within the team. So, so what I, I would say to the, the players going into any job as a manager, and I'll do the same if I went into a job as a manager tomorrow, is that, okay, the week, this is the type of week that we're likely to have as, as a norm. Um, most of the time will be your time. And you, well, I will make sure there are plenty of things that you enjoy doing. So there'll be plenty of, of small-sided games. There'll be plenty of, of crossing and finishing. There'll be plenty of time that you can really enjoy yourself. There'll be, there'll be a lot of, a lot of uh, focus on you being trained in a way that, that gets you prepared for the games. You know, that you, you know, you, you, you can you put on the sessions that are actually geared towards what you're going to do later in the week when it gets all serious. But the players don't know that. They don't have a clue. They just turn up and say, what are we doing today? Um, so so you've, you've already planned that I'm doing these sessions here, which are just relaxed sessions for the players, but I'll re refer back to them at the, at the end of the week. So I'm saying to them that most of the time will be your time. A little bit of the time during the week will be my time. And that's when I need you to be focused. I need you to understand that this is not, this is not about having fun. This is not about uh, you know, just making sure that you go off with a smile on your face. This is actually the, the real kind of nitty-gritty. This is what the uh, the week is mainly going to be about. So so it will be a very small section. It might be 20 minutes in the whole week, but I need their focus and their attention completely. And, and then, you know, the rest of the time, as I say, will be, will be their time, but all linked to what I'm trying to do anyway. 
I think there's an art in that, Alan, because you've you're giving them what they want while still achieving your outcomes. Because obviously, you, you if you're tiered up in a certain way, they again they may have little to no idea what it is you're looking to get, but you're still giving them what they want. Yeah. Uh, well, as an as an example for that, you know, let's say. We're playing against a team that we feel as if if we can get the place the, the ball switched from one side to another, we can overload them down that side and we can we can cause them some problems in that way. The possession sessions, the small sided games, will be done in a way that encourage switching the play, and you know the the message will be getting dropped in from the very first day of, of that week that we're going to switch the play, we're going to switch the play, not. Not that they know that that's with regards to the games, but quite simply, you make a you make a possession that's on a short pitch but really wide, or you make a a, a four goal game up or something like that, and you you you're then planting the seeds that you're then going to refer back to when it comes to the tactical work, perhaps on the Thursday or the Friday when you're saying, okay, remember what we did on Monday morning. This is why we did it. And it, it all links in that way. So you, yes, you, the, you, you described it as an art, David. Um, and it, yeah, it's certainly something that, that gets learned over the years about how you can still get what you want into it, but in their way, in their format. If you were to describe what elite coaches and elite managers, what qualities they possess, what, was, what would be some of the things that they have? Well, knowledge for a start. Um, obviously, you you can't you can't be at that level without having the knowledge. Um, they will all have attention to detail. They they would all have fantastic principles and work ethic. Um, they will all. I, I believe that they would all reflect on on what they're doing. They would need to they need to plan carefully what they're going to do. They need to be able to, nowadays, man management is, is bigger than it ever was before. Uh, you know, we, David and I, at the beginning of, of the, the days at, at Everton, we used to think that everything was solved with another coaching session. But actually, you know, as, as you, it hurts me to say it as a coach, but, uh, but actually man management for me is much more important at first team level. Than, than coaching and it's probably becoming more and more important at youth development level as well um, Ray, Ray Harford used to say that you know if people don't think that you like them they won't let you help them so you, you've got to kind of look after them uh, properly create the right kind of environment which is is that environment again like Kenny said where it's enjoyable people like coming to work they like coming to the training ground but they know they're there to work and they know that it's they can have a laugh, they can have a whole load of fun, but there's a line that you don't cross. It doesn't become a joke. It doesn't become something that's just for a bit of a comedy value or anything like that. So, you obviously have influenced a lot of coaches in your career, and uh, briefly, hopefully, some well. <laughs> <laughs> And equally, you know, there's been some key influences on your coaching and management career to date yeah. as well. Who have they been and 
what is it about these people that, that you admire the most about them, Alan? Well, well, first of all, I've I've learned from every single coach that I've that I've worked with or worked under, um, and in some cases, I've learned things that I would definitely do, and in some cases, I've learned things that I definitely wouldn't do, um, and you know that can be the same the same person, you know, often the same person that I'm, I look at. You know, I said said that when I started to get into coaching, I really started to analyze what coaches were doing, what managers were doing. Why is why is he doing that? Why is he why is he working in this way today? And that wasn't about being critical or trying to be clever. It was just that I'm thinking there's a reason for it. That, you know, he's he's doing this for a particular reason. What is that that, that he's doing it for? And and trying to kind of really work all of that out. And and as a result of that, I. Uh, I, I looked at, at many things that managers did and thought, I will definitely do that. When I, when I become a manager, when I become a coach, I, I will definitely do that. I'd look and see other things and I think, I like it, but I wouldn't do it that way. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, but I'm going to kind of modify that to suit what I think is the important thing. And then there'd be other things where I'd be saying, no, there's no way I'd do that. And, and, you know, I've worked under such a range of managers and coaches, some who, you know, I'll call them all managers, some who were brilliant coaches and some who were brilliant man managers. So um, I've mentioned already that probably the biggest influence would have been my early days, Kenny Dalglish and Ray Harford sitting at the lunch table talking football. It was fascinating. It was, I was like a sponge sitting there because the two of them came from completely different directions. Kenny was a genius as a player who really came out with some unbelievably clever things. But going back to that simple thing again, you know, they were unbelievably simple, clever things that, that you just thought, wow. No wonder he was such a good player, because for him to even see any of that was, was just astonishing. Um, Ray, on the other hand, was... A, a, now, Kenny wasn't a coach. So, as an example, uh, I was working with James Beattie. He was a youth team player at the time. Um, I was trying everything. You know, this reflection thing again. I was trying everything to help James in terms of his movement and I was I was getting nowhere, um, not certainly not getting anywhere quickly enough. So Kenny, centre forward, one of the best players ever, said to him, "Would you come and help me with James Beatty?" So uh, he said, "Well, what do you want me to do?" I said, "Well, I'm trying to get him working in terms of these particular runs that I want him to make, but I'm not getting anywhere." So he said, "Well, well, I don't know what to do." So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll put the session on and you come and talk whilst it's, whilst it's going on. And what was coming out of him was just fantastic. He had no idea how to set it up, but, he, but what came out of him was fantastic. Absolute perils of wisdom, gold dust. We'll go back onto the, the gold dust again. That's, and uh, and, and it, it was a great help for Beats, but it ended up being a combined thing. Ray, on the other hand, was a sensational coach. Ray was a brilliant 4-4-2 coach, extremely well-organised, 
Um, and I learned so much from him. But Kenny had this thing about, well, get, we'll get good players and the good players will make all the best decisions and things like that, um, which he was able to do. And Ray said, yeah, but they're good players, but they need to all work together. And the two of them would argue at the, the, the lunch table loads of times. And I sat there just lapping it all up about all these different ways of looking at it. Do we show inside? Do we show outside? Um, you know, read this thing about passing it right foot to right foot, which again, for me, just so simple that if you pass, if a fullback right back is passing it to the centre forward, the the central defender is likely to be on his left side. So you pass it with your right foot as the right back to the centre forward's right foot. And that's the foot away from the, the defender. So Kenny said, what, what if he was a bad defender? <laughs> he, he might be on the wrong side. So they said, well, you pass it to the other side then. Well, just why don't you just say pass it, pass it away from the defender? And these were the kind of conversations that would go on. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I learned so much from, from listening to the two of them. But, you know, so many other people would influence me. As I say, different managers who, you know, I worked with one manager who was a fantastic coach and a terrible man manager. And I moved from him to another manager who wasn't a great coach, but was a fantastic man manager. And I just looked at all these different people in this range that you could have to do the job successfully and thought, okay, well, so there are all different ways of doing this. Can I pinch the best bits, in my view, from, from everybody and then put them in as being, you know, and try and be me? Because in the end, you've got to be you. Because you can't, you can't, we all copy, we all steal things as coaches, you know, we, we do it, we do it all the time. Um, uh, but, you know, you, and you maybe adapt things and so on, but you, you have to, in the end, be yourself. I could not agree more. And I say a good coach is a good thief because they take great qualities or well, they take great qualities from, from the people who've been around. And, and at the same time, they also learn from maybe how things shouldn't be done or how they don't want them to be done. But yeah. I think the most important thing you touched on it is you've got to be your true authentic self because yes. you can't be, Alan, I, I'm never going to be you. So I could take what you've said today, but I've got to put it in my own, in my own unique way that, that is best for me. Yeah. And, and if it turns out to be a lot better than what I've been doing, then I'll happily steal it. <laughs> <laughs> in that, you talk about the influences that you've been around and it's, it's obviously very evident. You're a, you're a learner, a lifelong learner. And Henry Ford has a, had a quote. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether 20 or 80, anyone yeah. who keeps learning stays young. And yeah. you mentioned then that everyone you've been around, you'll take something from them, no matter no matter how big or small, no matter how good or bad it is, but the reality is you've been around some great footballing people. So yes. you mentioned Kenny Daglish and Ray Arthur, then you mentioned the conversations and just uh, to be a fly on the wall would be fantastic, but you were well, in that. Yeah, and that's what I was. I, I was able to get that, which was incredible. Well, it's not, you've obviously you've been around a lot more and 
name a few. So Steve Coppel, Jim McLean, Don McKay, Jim Fennell, you've, you've spoke about, Don Howell, Dave Sexton, Roy, Roy Hodgson, Rude Hullet. And then obviously recently, you've, or in your, your later, you spent a lot of time around David Moyes. In terms of lessons, what are the biggest lessons you learned on your journey working with so many excellent people? Um, well, as I say, different different lessons from different people. Um, you know, Don Howe, you mentioned there just now, detail, tiny little details. Dick Bates, who, who we, we know uh, as well, who was, was just an absolutely fantastic coach of coaches, um, brilliant coach developer. Um, I, I don't know about player developer, but brilliant coach developer. But, you know, Don, Don Howe had, I, I think probably all of them have got bundles of enthusiasm. Don Howe would, would kind of coach and coach and coach. And, and um, I, I followed, I stopped Don Howe, actually. I, I followed them all over the place in the days of, of AFCAT. And, uh, and, and he must have been desperately thinking, I, I, I need to try and get rid of this guy, you know, because everywhere I turn up, he's there, you know. But but I learned so much from him, you know. His 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 passion, his his attention to detail, as I said, the the way he broke the game down. Um, the it, you know Don was Don was doing video analysis before anybody else that I saw doing the video analysis. He he had Don's tapes, you know, which Keith, you probably have seen some of them. You know, and it would be him sitting at home splicing kind of videotape in order to, to put together these things for us. It, it was just this love of the game, this this real passion and intensity in terms of, of looking at the game. And I think, you know, all the successful ones have to have that. Um, and, and as I say, they will have their own different ways of, of going about things, but they will all have their own qualities as, as well. And, and some of them will be stronger on the on what happens on the grass and some of them will be weak there, but they'll be really strong in what happens off the grass. And uh, Difficult to, you know, I'm, I'm a real mixture of a whole load of people kind of made up, you know, added to my own personality and things. So it's very difficult to, to kind of... Uh, to to actually single too many of the people out because they've all they've all impacted on me in in many different ways. As I, you know, I've mentioned probably ones who have had a greater impact because of of the the situation, the circumstances of you know how it was being around them. I've been being around the likes of Dick Bear to. Myself, over a long, long period of time, coach, developer, brilliant. Likewise with yourself, Alan, around Don Howe and experiencing some of his magical sessions. The diversity, but yet the commonality here is the, the or the golden thread is the love of what it is yeah. they did. And it came across that with their enthusiasm yeah. and their ability to attract and pull people towards them from all walks of life. You've yeah. been around the professional game. And, and for that to happen, that takes a great, great quality for that to occur. Now, yeah. just moving on slightly, football is viewed very differently nowadays from when you started off in your, in your early years of coaching and management. 
because of the, the constant scrutiny from fans and the media, you've mentioned a little bit around differences in players. We didn't go into any detail about that, but we're referring to player power. They now have agents. And then, of course, you've got time constraints where you've got your player today or you play on a Saturday, you might have a quick turnaround, you play Tuesday. Yeah. Now, all these factors must be a constant challenge for managers and coaches alike. How do you deal with it? Um, well, you, you can't waste time, that's for sure, because a lot of times you don't have time. So taking West Ham, for example, the, uh, tonight they, they play against Genk in, in Belgium. Um, and on Sunday they play against Liverpool. And, and so the, there's, there's hardly any time to uh, to prepare for the Liverpool game, which you know really you could do with several weeks to prepare for playing against Liverpool. Um, but you know this, this is only going to be a case of of a few hours that, that David will be able to get with the players. Um, so so you you've got to be well organised, I believe. Um, and you know you talk about transferable things as an insurance broker had to be well organised. Uh, so, so you 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 cannot afford to to waste any of the time that you've got. The players will will have to recover mentally and physically from the game that they play in Belgium tonight, and they will have very little time in which to do that before they have to start getting their heads now around the preparation and the tactical organisation for for playing against Liverpool. Um, so, so being being efficient. With, with the time that you've got is, is vitally important, making sure that anything that you're going to do is effective um, and, and trying to, to find different ways of getting your messages across. Now, fortunately, with today's technology, um, it, it is possible to do really good coaching sessions, I believe, using video. Um, so... You know, I, I think that sometimes a, a presentation to the players of the right video clips can actually save you a whole load of time on the grass. Um, but that's uh, this is me talking about develop. This is first team players. This is not developing young players, albeit that I I used video um, to to show young players of you know, top class examples of something before going out onto the pitch to, to work on it. So I, as an example, um, one particularly talented group of, of under 15 players at, uh, they could have been under 14s at the time, but at Everton at the time that was academy director, I wanted to do some work on blindside runs with them. So I got some clips from Champions League games which for me, that's the highest level, not, not World Cup games, not European uh, championship games, but, but Champions League games would be the highest level that these boys would see. And uh, I, I got examples of blindside runs. We, you know, only three or four examples. We broke them down in a classroom situation. Um, okay, tell me, let's let's talk about the, the timing of the run. Let's talk about the angle of the run. Let's talk about the, the way that he bends that run and, and things. Let's talk about the pass now. What does the pass have to be? And, and we, we had probably 20 minutes in front of the video. The boys, the boys giving the answers, me asking the questions, directing them in certain, certain ways. 
we went out to do the session and spent the next couple of hours working on blindside runs. A lot easier for me than being in a situation where they're looking at you and trying to get you to explain what's a blindside run. They've seen it. Let's go and take them out now and, and, and break it down to what are the techniques that are required and then building that into, okay, what's, what is the, the match situation? So building it up from a technical practice right the way through to a game. And that, that's the way I would like to coach uh, young players. First team players, they know what a blindside run is. So if you were talking about that, then you just show a video clip and they go, yeah, yeah, I got that. Um, and, and, and it's a very different situation. What will the elite games future coaches need to learn? Um, well, continually looking at how the game is adapting, how is it changing. To be perfectly honest, it's, I don't think it's going to be anything that's new. Um, it will just be a different slant on something that's already there. Uh, you know, Antonio Conte came with you know and introduced the back three to Chelsea. You know, and everybody said, "Well, this is revolutionary." I remember Glenn Hoddle playing back three. You know, when he was at Swindon, and and I used a back three on a number of occasions with young players because it fitted the group of players that I happened to have at the time. So, so it's not it's not new. It's just not been around for a while. Um, and I, you know, I think that 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 will. That will continue. There'll be a slightly different slant on it. You know, your Man City last season where they played the, the fullback in as a top 10 midfield player while they were in possession of the ball and things like that. So so it's it's just little adjustments. So the, the I think what they've certainly got to be able to be is, is tactically flexible because they will come up against different... There are more different systems now being used not, as I say, necessarily new systems, but more different systems being used in, in, a, in a season. You know, if I'm, I'm still doing a, a load of work for David on the, the opposition. And most weeks, the system's different that, that you're going to play against. So now you, that affects how you will, will prepare your team. It might mean that you change your system. It might mean that you, you actually... Uh, decide, well, no, I, I quite like the system that we are going to play because I think that will give us these opportunities. So uh, being being tactically flexible, really important. But I come back to it again, man management. You know, how do you get the best out of people who come from different national, the different nationalities, they've got different cultures, they've got different backgrounds. You know, I've, I've worked with players at first team level who grew up in war zones as kids. You know, there's there's a different way of dealing with people who have had that kind of background than, than dealing with somebody who's been living in a nice little semi-detached somewhere in in uh, in, in England. So so you're you're uh, you're continually having to look and, and find a way of helping the individual without appearing to have any favourites. So for me, it used to always be said, and Keith, you'll remember, treat everyone the same. Well, that's nonsense because everybody's different. So how do you do that then without appearing to be unfair? Well, you've got to try and treat everybody fairly, but treat them the way that, that works for them in terms of, of how they are as, as personalities. So it's become... Team coaching has become much more about individuals 
than than it ever was before, um, and and being able to then, you know, you like you you can't. I'm I'm sixty three, but you know there's there are there are lads that, that are playing in West Ham's first team who are younger than my kids, and you know the, I I can't be their mate. That's that's for sure. But but I can hopefully be someone that they will they will listen to and and someone who feels that I can I can help them. And it, and what what you find even at first team level, even at Premier League level, everybody likes to be liked. Everybody likes somebody looking after them, somebody trying to help them. And if you can do that and and find a way of of helping each individual, then I think you've got a really good chance. Alan, you've mentioned on many occasions here about managing. Can you manage people, or do we? facilitate learning environment where they feel part of it and it's very evident that's taking place at West Ham and everywhere you've you've worked uh, and coached and even though those experiences as we start to gather more and more information about people as we get older it still comes down to one common thing and that is if you if you make them feel good about themselves the more than likely it'll go out to express in their own individual way. Yeah. Now, final question. What is your greatest curiosity about coaching and the trends within the game as it currently stands? Yeah. Um, well, I think that the game is only going to continue to get quicker. Um, you know, it, it's always, it was always a challenge as a, as an academy director or as a youth team coach, knowing where's the game, where's the game going to go? The, the the biggest question was always, where's it going? Because I'm working with some 14-year-old players here. What's the game going to look like when they're 20? And so you're continually trying to kind of figure that out. So so one thing's for sure, the, the technical demands are going to continue to, to uh, increase. They will, will be expected to perform more techniques, a big, you know, bigger range of techniques at greater speed, because that's that's the way the game has gone and has continued and will continue to go. They will have to understand tactical, uh, diff- different tactical shapes, organisations, different tactical uh, practices. They they will have to make sure that they are. They are able to adapt to the needs of the demands of different coaches because you know that's that's certainly going to be be thrown at them. You know, you, you see how quickly coaches change nowadays. If you're working with young players, they, they've certainly got to know um, how to how to respond to different. Just like I said about us having to look after individual players. Differently, the players are going to have to understand how to to work best under individual coaches and managers, because it, it changes so quickly. So, if I was in development, well, I, I've always said a big thing about the development that um, we the important thing is that you prepare them for for first team football. That you are you're not leaving anything to chance. Not There will be no surprises. The only thing you can't prepare young players for 
is playing in front of 50,000 fans. Because that's the only thing that they, they wouldn't be able to experience on the journey through an academy. So I, I feel that the, the coaches are going to have to be much more adaptable, much more flexible, and the players are going to have to be much more adaptable and much more flexible. You know, we see how quickly, you know, that Tottenham, well, you know, they, they have, how many managers have those players had now in the last year? Three or four managers, you know, and so they, they're going to have to be able to, to change very quickly because what one manager's asking them to do is different than others, you know. Just I would imagine that that Conte will uh, will will get back to his back three as quickly as he possibly can at, at Tottenham, you know. Um, and and he and why not? He does it extremely well. I've got to thank you on behalf of David, myself, and the listeners to to just be able to listen to so much knowledge because the purpose and the meaning behind every word that you've used has been extremely. You can feel it. Yeah, it's not just they're not just words. These are these are words of of someone that's been around the game a very long time. But what also comes across is that you're a lifelong learner, no matter whether you're fifteen, twenty-five, or sixty-three or sixty-five. Uh, David's already mentioned it in one of the quotes here about Henry Ford, where no matter what age you are, you just have that vibrance and urgency. If you want to learn something, it comes through and it comes through with passion. And so thank you ever so much for your time today. It's been wonderful to have you with us. No, you're very welcome. Uh, Hopefully people get something out of it. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.